Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 11 through 17. It's Luke's version of the feeding of the 5,000 with two loaves and with five loaves and two fish. But there's all sorts of other things in the story that, in the narrative, that impels us in many ways to reflect more deeply on the Eucharistic meaning of this particular passage. We can't skip over it simply as a miracle story, nor can we take the miracle out of the story and try to find some kind of natural explanation for the whole thing. How there is a natural explanation for um, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish is kind of a stretch of the imagination, because that's not what the gospel says at all. And we're used to some of those interpretations. I remember years ago I heard someone say, well, the miracle was that they really did all have food with them, and, uh, and they shared it with one another, and that was the miracle, was their generosity. Well, that isn't what the gospel says. That, that isn't what the word of God says. It doesn't imply that. It doesn't say that. I don't, all that does is come to us from people who do not believe in the miracles, and so they have to find some way to get around them. We find many instances of that. Most of the, the healings, you know, well, they had, they had uh, that was a psychosomatic healing because they had epilepsy or they had something else. And it was a natural process that the parting of the Red Sea was the blowing of the Scirocco winds that dried up the Reed Sea and so forth. Anything to avoid the fact of a miracle. But the gospel is insistent that these things are miracles, and is insistent that this passage today is also a miracle. And it begins by saying, Jesus made the crowds welcome and talked to them about the kingdom of God, and he cured those who were in need of healing. He talks to them about the kingdom of God, and that is a very important phrase when it comes to what's happening then after that in this gospel story. Because the kingdom of God is in some ways the abundance of God's goodness and the end of, of uh, the, the uh, hardships and difficulties of our lives um, when we come to it in fullness and fullness, which is after the particular judgment and after we enter then into the kingdom of God if, if we do so. So then <clears throat> the gospel goes on and says, It was late afternoon when the twelve came to him and said, Send the people away, and they can go to the villages and farms around them to find lodging and food, for we are in a lonely place here. If they were carrying food with them, what would be the sense of sending them away to find it? So the gospel wants us to focus on what's going to happen, and it wants us to see it for what it is intended to be, for what it really is. And Jesus replied to them and said, Give them something to eat yourselves. But they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go ourselves and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. But he said to his disciples, Go get them to sit down in parties of about 50. 
So the disciples, once again, it sets the story. This is what's available for the 5,000, is five loaves and two fish. And, uh, and that's, the gospel makes that extremely clear. So that these other kind of fantastic interpretations of it have no foundation in the scripture themselves. They have a foundation, basically, in the mind of the skeptics. And since we know that the miracles are restorative, that we know that the miracles are revelations to us of the original state of creation, of the goodness that is there, and Jesus performing them of his power over the created entities of the world that line up with John saying that through him all things were made and without him there is nothing made. So now the, 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 this, the problem is set up that they have five loaves and two fish, there's 5,000 people, and uh, there's no way that they can do this. So Jesus then gives a directive. Get them to sit down in parties of about 50. They did so and made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish. And I think this is a very important part of this. He raised his eyes to heaven and said the blessing over them and broke them and handed them to disciples to distribute among the crowd. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And when the scraps remaining were collected, they filled 12 baskets. This certainly is a miracle story. And so what happens now is very, very important because the word that all of the Gospels use for the bread in this particular miracle situation, and they all four have the miracle situation, is the word klasmata. There are different words for bread. Klasmata is the word used in Scripture to designate the Eucharistic bread. It's the word that St. Paul uses in the first letter to the Corinthians which is the first biblical um, <clears throat> institutional narrative. And they, and they also, um, it's used in the others in relationship to the Eucharist. So, first of all, they use the word that indicates Eucharistic presence, Eucharistic bread. And then what does Jesus do? He raises his eyes to heaven. He says, in other words, he implores the Father. Once he does that, then he said the blessing over them. And then he broke them, and he handed them to his disciples to distribute to the crowd. You know, in Luke's Gospel also, we have the same image in the story of the road to Emmaus. When Jesus is explaining to the two disciples on the road that the Old Testament refers to him, and he went through it and told them where that was and how that was, they still did not know who he was, but they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Here we have once again the breaking of the bread. And so he has now raised his eyes to heaven as we do at the consecration of the Mass. He says the blessing over them, and then after that, when it comes time for communion, we break the bread and hand it on to, we distribute it ourselves and hand it on to those who assist us in doing so. So there is very much here uh, an an image and an implication of the coming Eucharistic feast in which Jesus is to feed himself, his body and blood, to his disciples and tell them to continue to do this. Um, and when they do continue to do this, the community grows until we get to the Gospel of John 
where it is the standard practice. It is so standard that he does not have to even tell us about how it happened because the community has been practicing it now in his gospel for not sure how long, but at least 60 to 70 years. And so then what we have here is a story, and this is where it ties back into the kingdom of Jesus' discourse to them about the kingdom of God. What is characteristic then of the kingdom of God? It is first of all of us participating in the life of the Lord. And it is secondly where there is an abundance and all of our needs are fulfilled. There is a superabundance of everything that the person needs. And that superabundance of everything the person needs, we should not think of merely in material terms, but also in terms of the very deep interiority of our lives. Because there is within us a great capacity that is never actually fulfilled in the living of this life, at least not normally so. And the only person we know for sure where that inner need, that inner longing was fulfilled in this life was the mother of God. And, uh, and hence we move from there then into the assumption of Mary. So, so there is an acknowledgement of a need within humanity. Here it's expressed as hunger. But it is a hunger. It is not just a hunger of the body, but it is also a hunger of the soul. Because we need, we need interior lives that we cannot achieve on our own. We, we need a fulfillment of the desires of our heart. We need to be, to be overwhelmed by love and care. We need all of those things. And the degree we experience spiked moments of them, perhaps in our life, being fulfilled in some way, shape, or form. But we never find a continuing life where these needs are always there. St. Teresa of Avila talks about these needs. And she calls them pain. And she said that in some way, um, when we have progressed far enough in our relationship with Jesus Christ, that this pain is to be welcomed because basically it brings with it a certain joy. And the joy of it is not a masochistic joy at all, but a joy in knowing what we need and knowing that it is possible to attain it. And so it solidifies and deepens our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ for we seek from him that which we cannot obtain anywhere else. So here we have the very first steps of the fulfillment of the interior needs of ourselves as persons. It is the filling of our material need, of our material hunger, but in such a way that it prefigures what the, the abundance of goodness and the abundance of love and the abundance that we receive from the Eucharist. Because this is intentionally a Eucharistic text. And to deny the miraculous nature of this text is to deny the miraculous nature of bread and wine becoming the body and the blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to be very careful in being skeptical and overly critical and replacing our own intelligence, limited as it might be, over and against the wisdom of the Holy Spirit who has inspired the scriptures and who has allowed into the scriptures those things which we need for our growth, our salvation, 
our spiritual life, our life with Jesus Christ in the midst of the world. And I think that this is something. You know, <clears throat> in the middle of the 20th century, there was a, a tremendous um, surge in biblical scholarship. And it had started back in the late 18th century and it moved and gained momentum through the 19th and well into the 20th. It hit the American church in the early to the mid 20th century. And with all of the tools that were developed, which are very helpful for us in understanding the scripture, but it's like most things that are on a trajectory, that it always goes too far. And so we began to trust more in human intelligence than we trusted in the Holy Spirit. We began to, to uh, trust more in human learning than we trusted in the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And whenever these two things clash in a culture, and whenever they come um, side by side within a culture, parallel each other, we know, for instance, that the, 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 the whole human endeavor, the whole scholarship endeavor, if it is not guided by the Spirit of God, becomes shallow and becomes empty. We, we, can, we, we know that, we know that left to ourselves, we do not plumb the depths of the presence of God in the midst of the world, no matter how smart we are, how clever we are, or how well-educated we are. And it comes to the point also in this interpretation of Scripture where some people will, will um, say that, you know, you can't really interpret the Scriptures unless you know Hebrew, unless you know Greek, unless you know Latin, unless you're familiar in some ways with cuneiform and Ugaritic and so forth. Those are incredibly valuable tools for, for exegeting, interpreting um, the, the actual fact of the written Bible. But ultimately, ultimately, the author of the scripture is God himself. And that the, he is not that exclusive, nor is he that much of an intellectual snob, actually, where he knows that when he speaks to his people, they are capable of understanding if their hearts are disposed. It helps, certainly, to, uh, to be able to apply some human skills to the interpretation of scripture, but ultimately, ultimately, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is guided and interpreted by the church. And this is exactly, for instance, where if we are not humble enough to acknowledge the church's right to which, which, which guards and contains the word of God, its right to authentically interpret it through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then we get into this business, not necessarily scholarship business, but this idea of total private interpretation of the scripture. And this was certainly what happened during the Reformation. And when we find, for instance, Luther going through the scripture and throwing out the parts of the scripture that did not agree um, with his theological position, we find him then throwing away the word of God and choosing his own wisdom, his own word, his own experience instead. This becomes kind of a plague within the church. And, um, and there was a great encounter in the 16th century between a poor Claire Abbess in Nuremberg, Germany, and Philip Melanchthon, who was the uh, theologian for the reformers in Wittenberg, where Luther was. And basically, since she would not go along nor allow her monastery to go along with the Reformation, 
And yet she was a woman of great substance, one of the one of the humanists of the age, corresponded in Latin with the great intellectuals of the time. Um, that they sent Philip Melanchthon to convince her of her error for retaining her loyalty to the church. And when the meeting was over, um, the the poor Claire Abbas said, "Well, we agreed on many things," um, and she said, "Except religious vows." and the private interpretation of scripture. And she said, and I said, that certainly we could rely on the private interpretation of scripture as long as we were united with the church and were speaking through the wisdom of the church. So that this relationship between God's word and human wisdom is one of the great struggles, one of the great struggles of this interpretation of scripture. That... We know that scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It does not deceive us. It is, it is the word of God wrapped in the word of humanity. And that even though there was not necessarily a consciousness of being guided, it is that same spirit which guides the church to be inerrant, the same spirit which keeps the church from making dogmatic errors in the teaching of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So too was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit present in the lives of all of those who wrote in the scripture in order that what God wanted to be said ended up being said in their own words, in their own time, in their own culture. And, and this, I think, is where this idea of the learned scripture scholars come in very, very usefully and helpful in the church is that they can take and deconstruct those human situations and find out then basically what is intended, what is going on in the minds of the authors. Um, But they cannot trump the message of the Holy Spirit by saying, therefore, he didn't mean this or he didn't mean that, or therefore, he didn't say this or he didn't say that. We can't do that because what what the Spirit has said, the Spirit has said. And what the Spirit has moved others to write about, the Spirit has moved others to write about. So that when we are now in the situation of attempting to understand a complicated passage in the gospel, we see the foolishness that surrounds it of those people who believe somehow or other that their own insight is more important than the insight of the Holy Spirit. Their whole wisdom is greater than the wisdom of the evangelists. Their whole understanding is greater than the understanding of the corporate church throughout the ages. And that somehow or other, it's all about what I think. And in so doing, they distort. And so they ignore the words of the gospel. They ignore the events of the gospel. And they say, oh, well, it was just people sharing their lunches. Um, You know, even on the face of it, we know how ridiculous that is, how foolish that is. So what we have then is a Eucharistic text a text prefiguring the actual institution of the Eucharist by Jesus with the disciples at the meal. What then do we have to say about the consequences of this? What do we have to say now about what this prefigures? It prefigures the distribution of bread and wine, the body and the blood of the Lord, to all humanity for all ages. It is, therefore, a sign that nothing is impossible for the Lord. 
And when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, when he takes the bread at the Last Supper, raises his eyes to heaven, says the blessing over it and breaks it and gives it to his disciples, he means what he says. His words are not open to interpretation because he speaks a language that is concrete and real where they don't have the distinction in their minds. They don't have the distinction between the word and the reality that we do. We speak a language that is wrapped in abstractions of sorts, where we um, abstract from certain entities sounds that signify that entity, and we call that language. Jesus' language did not go through that abstractive process. The language of Jesus and the the words of Jesus and the realities of the things that he did were in his language brought together as one. You could not speak in a word, in a word many of uh, that is in our sense of the word symbol, merely symbolic, which is what many have done because they find it all too difficult to believe what he said. But symbol is a funny thing. When we go back into the early, the fathers of the church, what we discover is they use the word symbol too, but they use it in a different sense than we use it in modern language in modern times because they used the word symbol in the sense that it contained what it symbolized. In other words, there's not an abstract relationship between the symbol and the deed or the word. We, we find that our symbols are, are very abstract symbols, even, even a traffic stop sign. Um, we, we don't in some way, speak, shape or form, speak of, of the stopping of, of, of traffic and, and uh, that it, it's an experience of stopping the car or anything like that. We see it as a sign, something that points to something outside of itself, and that is to the drivers. But, but that's not what the fathers meant when they talked about symbol. What they meant when they talked about symbol was that they were using words because to express that reality which the words in our language signify. And I think that that's that's a a stretch that we have to go through. This is part of where we get to the point of saying, you know, there is some scholarship that certainly is very available and, and very important for us. The idea that what they said was the concrete reality of what they meant and not a symbol of it, not an abstract symbol of it. So when Jesus then takes the bread and wine at the institution of the Eucharist and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, there is no, there is no symbolic abstraction between the bread and the wine and the words that the Lord uses. He is speaking the reality of the concrete reality that he holds in his hands. And that therefore there is no way in the Aramaic or Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language, there is no way in other words, to interpret those texts in any other way except the way the church has, in, has interpreted them without doing violence to the text and without changing the intention and the meaning of the things that were said in the institutional narrative of the Eucharist. Here he has already said, you want the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is among you. Here's what it's like. First of all, it involves me 
And secondly, it is filled with abundance, the abundance of everything you could possibly want, of everything you could possibly need, which is why the gospel then goes on to say, when the scraps remaining were collected, they filled 12 baskets. So it is not only enough for us, but it is an overflowing generosity that there is plenty left over for the rest of the world. And that is so with the Eucharist. While we say that this was offered for us and for many, we're saying that it's uh, it's offered specifically now. And this was a controversial thing when they when they took away the word all and put it in back into the word many. And there were many scripture scholars who said, well, that's not what the all meant, and so forth. But it isn't. That isn't the issue. the The issue really is what does it mean. And the meaning is that not everyone receives the Eucharist, that not everyone is capable of receiving it, but that the many who do, it is the body and the blood of the Lord. For those who do not, it is until they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that these things will be given to them and shared with them, the body and the blood, the soul and the divinity of Jesus Christ. We find also in the modern church, and we have to be careful of this because they say, well, polls show that 60% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. It's alarming. That's shocking. It means 60% of the people uh, of, the, of Catholics don't believe that Jesus is telling the truth. Um, but when we take that 60%, who are those Catholics? How many of them are those who are Catholic in name only, who don't practice the faith, who don't believe anything anyway? who decide that they want to rewrite the whole thing to, uh, you know, to suit themselves and to take away from them any problems or any necessity of deep reflection, any necessity of humility, any, dis- any necessity of a striving to openly have their hearts cleansed of the sinful nature that they live. It is, it is those kinds of Catholics that probably are being included in the polls. How many people do you know who say they're Catholic, who know virtually nothing about the faith and don't go to church? Um, that's, you know, we have to take that into account when we evaluate the authenticity of the polls that we're finding in the modern, in the modern world, in the modern news media. But for those who believe, the story is real. The story is real, and it, the, the people of God were prepared for it by these narratives on the feeding of the 5,000 in all four Gospels, where the word klasmata for bread is used, the very br- word that is used in the institutional narrative of the, of, the, of the Last Supper. It is, therefore, the actions and the activity of Jesus himself, raising his eyes to heaven, saying the blessing, breaking the bread, and handing it to his disciples, and so forth. So, yes, it is a prefiguration of a Eucharistic text, but it is concrete, and it is real, and it is not just some kind of abstract narrative. It is a concrete narrative. This is what he did. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us. And that's what the Lord asks us to believe in order to move more deeply into the mystery of our faith and the mystery of the Eucharist. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.